This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. Welcome to our second special edition of Future You, Future You Live, where we're recording uh, at ASU GSV in front of a live audience. Yeah. And uh, particularly excited because uh, uh, we have a guest co-host uh, tonight, uh, uh, Goldie Blumenstick from the Chronicle for Higher Education. Goldie was one of our first uh, guests on Future You. And then when Jeff uh, couldn't be here tonight, uh, unfortunately, uh, Goldie stepped right in, and there she goes, uh, getting 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 ready to uh, yeah. get, getting ready to really be a, a co-host. And uh, welcome, Goldie, to the show. Thank you very much. I'm really excited that this is a happy hour podcast because I'm uh, happy houring. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're properly uh, making sure everyone's enjoying themselves. Uh, so, Goldie, I, I'm curious because obviously this is the tenth year of ASU GSV. I don't think you were here in the first year of it. No, I started the seventh year. Seventh year, okay. But it was still back in Arizona, and there was still dinner at Arizona State back then. Yeah. Before we outgrew Arizona, right. yeah. And so uh, it's interesting, though, this conference has gone from like a, a 150 people or something like that to 4,800. In your mind, how, for, as a journalist, I'm just curious, covering this, is it a must attend event? Like, what's the nature of it from your perspective? Well, given what I cover, it's become definitely a must-attend event because I write a lot about the areas of innovation around, in and around higher ed, and I guess increasingly this is a lot about the innovation around higher ed, not directly in higher ed. Um, but many of the people that are doing things that have an impact, you know, at the edges of higher ed and maybe fundamentally more importantly, things that are fu- becoming more fundamental to higher ed, but from the outside. So yeah, this, for me, it's, I can't miss this one now. Yeah, well, so it's a perfect, and it's a perfect topic uh, to bring up our uh, first guest, uh, Chuck Oy uh, of Kenzie Academy. Welcome to the show, Chuck. Thank you, Michael. I, I'm guessing that a lot of our listeners don't know what Kenzie Academy is. Uh, you're one of, within uh, sort of our circles, you're one of the uh, hotter uh, companies to, to emerge. And last night we had uh, Ryan Craig on who talks a lot about last mile providers. So you fit into that category. But can you describe what Kenzie Academy is and the big problem that you're trying to solve? Yeah. So last mile, but longer last mile. Uh, we, we, we basically, we are a uh, career college uh, that focuses on training people into high-paying jobs in technology or tech-related careers. Uh, our programs are longer than uh, many coding boot camps, so it's usually 12 months to uh, one or two years, but less than half the time of a traditional four-year college. So we, we pretty much unbundle a lot of best practices that we get from boot camps and colleges to create a new model where we can serve a larger demographic. And we focus on the American heartland, where we think innovation will come uh, over the next few decades. Why the American heartland? Is that just where you're from, or do you see some gap there? I actually moved from the East Coast to uh, Indianapolis to, to start um, you know, the, the academy two years ago. Uh, but that's where we see, uh, you, as you all know, there's all this talk about Silicon Valley being way too expensive to operate and uh, to live. To even you know, making six-figure salaries, you're below the yeah, poverty no, it's, line. It's, I mean, it's tough to afford housing out there. Yeah. So where we see the trend, and many people don't realize until you spend a lot of time in places like Indianapolis, Ohio, all these places, there are a lot of re emerging cities in the Midwest, in the South, that are going to be a lot of new tech hubs and tech centers that will attract a lot of new jobs that are coming. Um, so we believe that uh, number one problem in all the cities as well, if you go to talk to the founders there, is access to qualified talent. Uh, we see that universities are, not, uh, are, are trying to keep up with uh, how fast things are changing at the workplace. So uh, you know, we see an opportunity to skill up that talent uh, so that it makes uh, the cities attractive to continue to attract more jobs coming from the coast as well as locally homegrown tech jobs. 
So I'm curious, can you get into the guts of the program, like a little bit more of what, what does it look like for a student to come in and what's that experience actually like over a year to two years and, and what's the variability there? So uh, we, we serve a, a, a very wide demographic of students. So students who are adult learners, uh, uh, 17 to 52, uh, average 27. But we're also uh, with a degree pathway that we're about to announce, a little hint over here. Ooh, yeah, it's coming, a little teaser. Uh, we are uh, also uh, will be able to serve a lot of 18, 19 year olds who are looking for a true alternative to college, but they still get to go home to their parents with a piece of paper that says a computer science or a business degree. Give, give us the scoop. Tell us a little bit more. Come on. Uh, coming soon. Coming soon. We like <laughs> very, to break news soon. on Future You. Yeah. Right. Are you looking at something that's going to be accredited, or do you still see this happening sort of outside that realm? So this will be a accredited computer science program. So students will still have the opportunity, if uh, you know, uh, mostly adult learners who just need uh, training and a pathway towards a good job. Many of them will just do like a 12-month Kenzie and uh, you know, go on to find a job, whereas people who has more time and want to get a earn a degree can hopefully do a two to three year Kenzie and graduate with a computer science degree. Why, why, why do you see the degree is important? Why, what specifically about that signaling mechanism or is there something else about it that's important? Yeah. So despite a lot of my peers were saying, you know, uh, you know, it's a medallion and we, we need to uh, do away with it. We still see a lot of value uh, because it is still, uh, you know, even though we have a lot of progressive employers like JP Morgan and Apple and all are starting to say we don't longer require a degree for hiring, but still vast majority of the industry still requires some level of signaling. So we believe it's still important. And especially like, we serve a lot of underserved communities. And for them, it's a rite of passage. Uh, being able to get a degree is actually a big part of you know, uh, accessing higher education. So we still want to make that available to them. But at the same time, we also want to train them on modern, uh, you know, tangible, hard technical skills so that when they have this piece of paper, they also have skills that employers will actually want to hire them. How do you reach out to the uh, to communities that you're trying to serve? I mean, is it traditional marketing or are there some other – are you working through workforce boards or sort of other kinds of organizations considering that you're actually trying to get a different demographic? So uh, there's definitely a combination of, uh, you know, marketing, digital marketing, and a few sources of marketing. But we believe um, the, you know, the, the, the best source is through partnerships. Uh, because of the target demographic we want to serve. So we work with unemployment offices of the state. We work very closely with the state government. We work with a lot of nonprofit uh, groups like Goodwill is a good partner that sent a lot of high-caliber students to Kenzie. We work with JAGS, Jobs for America graduates. So a lot of these organizations, that uh, some are regional and some are national, collectively allow us to reach you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people. So Chuck, I'd love you, last question, thinking forward five, ten years what does success look like, and how have you transformed the broader landscape of higher ed? What, what does that start to look like in your mind? So higher ed today is very sequential. Uh, it's almost like you have to do things right and follow a certain pathway to, to proceed. And what we really want to do is really change it into a, 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 web, a spider web, where there are multiple you know, on-ramps and off-ramps, uh, and also continuous learning. Uh, we're, we are away, we're in a world today where you can't get a degree and then work the same job for the rest of your life. The world is changing too rapidly. So we want to create opportunities for people to access different parts of higher ed throughout their, their life journey based on their life situation and give that, that opportunity for the work to be articulated and transferable between institutions and not just you know, uh, in a very uh, rigid, stringent pathway. Well, thank you for joining us in Future You. We'll, we'll be uh, looking forward to watching your journey, and uh, we'll be uh, right back.
Now we're uh, delighted to bring on our next guest, uh, Raheem Rajan of the uh, Gates Foundation. You've been there for a while at the Gates Foundation, actually, right, Raheem? That's true. I'm hitting uh, year eight. Are you the longest tenured in the post-secondary <laughs> success? Uh, <laughs> As of three months ago, I'm officially the longest tenured. Yes, that's okay, true. Congratulations. That, that's, that's a bit of a milestone. Thank you. So I, I, I'd love for, for folks that aren't like up to speed on what's, what the Gates Foundation is doing in this area, yeah. can you talk about your thesis right now on the post-secondary market, uh, what you're trying to impact and how? Yeah. Um, in some ways, our strategy has remained relatively consistent. We're focused on helping low-income students and students of color achieve better outcomes in post-secondary education. That's been our core strategy. I think you know what I would say is that we are um, very concerned about the value that students are gaining out of higher education. When you have a situation where low-income students or students of color can enter higher education and actually not succeed and incur worse outcomes than if they had never entered, that's certainly not a good situation. So we are very concerned about that. We are thinking about how it's not just about a meaningful completion of a post-secondary credential, but a credential of value. So what does that mean, right? Completion with a purpose. Uh, what's the economic benefit of the, of the credential? What's the kind of the social mobility return of that credential? So Raheem, you guys have been spending a lot of money in this sector for a while. Where do you think so far you've actually had some success? So I think, we, you know, I think we've had some success in understanding whether, number one, can institutions fundamentally transform their operating models, their economic models, their educational models, to literally close some of those equity gaps and attainment gaps. And I think we have examples of that. We have more examples today than we had five or ten years ago. The other thing is I think in some of the intervention areas where we've invested, we're beginning to see change at scale that has real meaningful impact on students. And where have you blown it? Um, you know, I, I don't know if we've blown it, but I think Come we've on. learned. There are things that okay. we've learned. Um, you know, you can, you can build early-stage companies, but there's an entire ecosystem that needs to be structured for those companies to succeed. We don't always have those kinds of environments in education. So then you have these people kind of operating out there without any... Well, I just think we don't... The markets we operate in don't operate in a rational way. So, for example, efficacious solutions don't always win market share in these markets. Um, investors don't always invest in the things that have the greatest efficacy evidence, for example. And colleges and universities don't always invest in those things that are going to benefit students the most, right? Um, there's, a, there's a lot of mixed incentives in what colleges do and how they operate. So I think we, we work oftentimes with market failure, and that, that's kind of the environment we work in, and we're trying to fix some of those market well, failures. Well, that's what I was going to say. You're not just, I mean, obviously you're a participant to some extent in the market in, in that you're funding actors in it, but you're also trying to shape the macro environment in which higher education operates to some degree as well. Absolutely. So what, what are the steps that you're taking to try to change that in any way, or, or, or what do you think is just not going to pay uh, dividends no matter what you do? Well, I think one of, the, one of the areas where we've been very interested in over a long period of time is um, ensuring that higher education has access to really um, rigorous data about student performance and, and really um, understanding the journey that students are on, especially for low-income students, underrepresented minority students, where we weren't always able to access data about outcomes 
And so that's some of the work we've invested with IHEP around the metrics framework, the post-secondary data partnership. But I think in, in other ways also, I think there are certain market failures where we have invested a lot of energy and, and, and we're starting to see dividends in, in better student impacts. It's interesting that you call it a market failure because some people would say, well, the market's spoken. It's not a failure. It's maybe the strategy isn't right or it's not on, on target. Say more. <laughs> maybe your strategies aren't right. That's interesting. I, I think the, 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 the reality of what colleges are facing, whether it's the decline in enrollments, the greater focus on accountability, the demand students have for meaningful degrees and success, I think all of those are bearing down pressures on higher education that are not going to go away. And so more and more colleges and universities are actually very eager to figure out ways. For some of those colleges, it's existential. The reality of whether they'll be around in five or ten years is a meaningful reality. And I think we used to talk about that, you know, people used to talk about that five or seven years For ago. For those in the podcast that right. can't see, he just pointed at me. It was seen as hyperbole. It was seen as hyperbole, right? Like, and maybe we got the numbers wrong, but there are certain segments of the market that are feeling a lot of pressure. And um, so, you know, we care about the success of certain student populations and closing those equity gaps. I think, you know, I think the things that we have invested in are fundamentally the right things. They're about the student experience and improving that student experience for students and ensuring that low-income students and students of color can attain much better outcomes. I think those are the right things for us to be leaning in on as a philanthropy. So you have a unique bird's-eye view of this. And, and I guess my last question is, of the things that you're, you're not investing in but you're seeing as yeah. promising, what are, you exciting about, what are you excited about and what should we be paying attention to as we look at this evolution of this higher education space? So one of the things that we are not significantly investing in yet, but which is of a lot of interest to us, is how these sectors connect. So what I mean by that is, you know, the students we're trying to help are operating through multiple systems. And those systems connect, and they ought to do a better job of connecting. And so whether it's K-12 to post-secondary, or whether it's post-secondary to workforce, we are very interested in those bridges between these systems and the inefficiencies in those bridges. Now, that's not to say that we are going to retreat from the core strategies that we have, but we are beginning to think about how these things connect, especially because the student experience is a uniform experience. So where can we create efficiencies that benefit those students along that journey? That's the thing that we're very interested in looking at and probably going to be doing more investments in. Well, we'll look forward to seeing where that uh, takes us. And uh, Raheem, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And we'll be back on Future You. This episode of Future You was made possible with support from the Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. The Academy is a partnership between Arizona State University and Georgetown University and is the premier training ground for those who aspire to senior leadership positions in higher education and those who want to lead organizational change at colleges and universities in the future. This episode was also made possible with support from Entangled Solutions. If you want to shape the future of education, Entangled Solutions would like to hear from you. Entangled Solutions is hiring smart, mission-driven team members interested in helping world-class institutions solve their most vexing challenges in learning and education. Learn more at entangled.solutions. 
next guest on the uh, podcast is uh, Eric Dar, the uh, president of uh, Harrisburg University that Goldie the Chronicle recently actually profiled in the efforts that uh, you've spent uh, turning around the university and, re- and growing it. Right. Yeah. Hi, Eric. Um, you know, I loved reading that story because when I've spoken to you before, it was all about esports, and I had no idea <laughs> that you had done all these other strategies at the at the college there. Um, one of the things that struck me about that story was how it described your strategy of. I guess I would—I don't even know if I should call it outsourcing or collaboration, but you do a lot of things taking advantage of resources that are beyond your campus. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. So the, you know, I think part of the interest in the Chronicle and the and and the author in in what we do is the speed with which we operate and the speed with which we're able to introduce new programs and make change and and part of that uh, the ability to do that is to use outsiders and to not feel like it has to be we have to have done it and higher ed with all due respect is you know i'm one of the evil higher ed people that we keep talking about right in the last but you know disembodied right exactly right so so but but you know for example we we have certain toys meaning we have equipment in our lab we have drones we have fairly sophisticated uh cameras and interactive media things that our brethren liberal arts universities that sit around us don't. Uh, we don't have a, a national nanofabrication lab. Penn State, right up the street from us, does. So we use their toys, and we make our toys available to them. And to me, that's, that's a, a, way, a cost savings for us and a win for the students because they have access to toys that we can't afford or won't afford. And likewise, students at liberal arts universities that sit around us can fly the leading sophisticated drones that their faculty will never invest in. And since we now have you speaking for all of higher ed, why doesn't that happen more often? Well, I, I, I think it's a control issue. I think it's, uh, well, if we don't control it, then how do we know what the quality is? Or we don't uh, have our hands on it. Maybe our faculty don't understand how to use a given gizmo or a given toy. Therefore, we feel somewhat inferior. And if it's just providing access, then, you know, we don't really want to do that. So I'd love you to lay the context of how you came then to this perspective that sharing and, 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 and this uh, more of a consortium approach, for lack of a better word, is the way to go and sort of lay the context for our listeners around where Harrisburg University was as you came on board. Well, so Harrisburg University is a private, nonprofit, comprehensive university, kind of constructed in the old traditional way that universities are built, in a world where today you don't see these things being built. We were the first one in Pennsylvania since Carnegie Tech 100 years ago. Nobody knew how to found a university. So we were a startup business. That's literally the way we, I looked at it anyway. And you don't have a lot of money as a startup, right? So you, you bootstrap. That's what startup companies do. And so we as a startup university bootstrapped. We outsourced cleaning, we outsourced security, we outsourced housing, we outsourced, we have no dining halls. We use vendors that sit around us. We take advantage of the Pennsylvania State System library system, so we didn't have to build a library. We, we took that approach with everything we do. And so, you know, look, I'm not going to spend $10 million on a nanofabrication lab. Penn State used federal taxpayer dollars to build it. Fine. You paid for it. Yeah. So I paid for it, right? <laughs> me, me personally, right? You know, and I appreciate everybody in this room helping to pay for that. So, you know, and, and now our students get to spend a semester abroad in beautiful State College, Pennsylvania, going to the nano, nano fabrication lab. I'm glad somebody, one person got that joke, so that was great. 
and more broadly, I think just for the sake of people listening, you're, when you took over the college, it was not doing in, it was not in such great shape. No, we, it was uh, very well chronicled, uh, pun intended. Uh, um, <laughs> Uh, well, we want everyone to read the article, but just in case they don't. Set of, set of you know, financial uh, problems. So I helped found the place, and I was chief financial officer, so I kind of was somewhat responsible. But then when I took over as president in 2012, um, we had uh, $75 million debt. We had a $3.2 million annual debt service, which is kind of like a mortgage, uh, and we had $300,000 in the bank not even enough to make payroll for a, a period of time and keep lights on, let alone meet debt service. And so what steps did you take besides the sharing that we've been talking about? Well, so fundament- So the university was founded to um, provide access to students that otherwise wouldn't have access for science and technology. Read uh, uh, African-American students and women in science and technology. Um, not a lot of money. Um, not a really sustainable business model, uh, particularly for those focused on just central Pennsylvania or eastern part of Pennsylvania. But what we did over those early years was build world-class science and technology programs with world-class faculty. All right, a small set of them. So we started looking around in 2012, what are other markets for these programs that we've built that are fairly unique, that are the highest quality, and that led us to international markets, to graduate programs. We have no uh, you know, arenas. We have no fraternities and sororities. We're unabashedly about career education. And so graduate students don't care about you know, all the stuff that some undergrads do. Graduate so, students just want to succeed. And so the graduate programs... That's um, predominantly graduate, you are. Correct. Yeah. So I, I, I want to go one level deeper in terms of the overall context and lessons we can extract from this because there are a lot of struggling universities right now uh, we've on this podcast had uh, the president of Simmons University uh, that, that turned that around dramatically. We've had uh, uh, other presidents of small colleges that have done remarkable things. Uh, and you're operating in a state where the state system itself of, of, co- of colleges uh, <laughs> is under significant duress. Correct. And so what lessons do you take out that you would tell other presidents and system leaders that they ought to be doing uh, to, to you, you know, obviously your, your cookbook, if you will, is specific to your university. Right. But what are the broader lessons? I, I would say, you know, don't be uh, so heavily tied to what you've done in the past. The past is what has led to where you might be today, <laughs> right? So, um, so because you have pre- – I mean, it sounds silly, but, right, you have pressure. You know, universities have pressure from trustees and from alumni to remain the way they are and from faculty that are embedded in the way they have behaved for – decades if not hundreds of years and so you have to figure out a way as a president to change things to get outside of those system limitations whether that means you change out your trustees or whether that means you you know just affiliate with alumni that are willing to change and to advance the future or whether that means you know you uh, co-op with a small set of faculty that are forward thinking but that's really the challenge for presidents in universities that have been around for a very long time that are bound by system constraints. Eric, thanks so much for uh, joining us, sharing the story, and, uh, and providing some ideas for other uh, university leaders. Thanks Appreciate for it. Me. Appreciate it. 
And our next guest on uh, Future You is Eleanor Cooper, the uh, co-founder and CEO of PathStream. And, and I suppose the first question, Eleanor, is uh, what is PathStream? Uh, obviously incubated out of uh, Entangled, but can you give uh, our listeners who probably haven't heard of PathStream yet an overview of what you're doing and the problem you're solving? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, so the problem that we're solving is that the digital skills gap is growing, and there are three root causes here where employers are, are having a hard time hiring for these growing job categories that require digital skills, and they're low-code skills like digital marketing, data analytics, and graphic design. Uh, and at the same time, software companies want to reach new users, but they're not educators, and at the same time, higher education wants to prepare their learners for the careers of the future, but... They, it, it's hard to keep up with the pace of technology. And so, and so the problem that, w- that we have here is the growing skills gap. And therefore, so many people are being left out of the modernizing tech economy without an on-ramp. Um, so what, what PathStream does is we partner directly with software companies, uh, such as Facebook and Unity, to build this digital skills curriculum that prepares people really directly for these high-growth career areas, like digital marketing, like data analytics. And then we, we bring that to our college and university partners so they can offer these programs. It's the alternative to having boot camps pop up and, and having all of these, these skills and careers being taught outside of the system. How can we make it so that higher education at a systems and at a scale level uh, is meeting the needs um, of the growing workforce? You're, te- you're um, speaking my language right now. I just finished up a big project on the skills gap. And I, what I heard over and over again, sort of at every level, is the, the power of these digital skills, even particularly for liberal arts graduates, but also for everybody else. So how does the model work? Are colleges paying you? Or are the students paying you? So, so the colleges are, are – so the, the software companies are actually paying us to help build the programs. They have lots of content, uh, but it's very specific to software platforms. Like, and then, tra- like Salesforce or things like that? Yes, exactly. So our, our software partners um, pay us to round out the curriculum, make sure it's preparing people for careers. And this is part of the way they give back. Um, not only as, as you know, the, the right brand that they want to have in the community, but also realizing their customers are, are having a skills gap need, and so there's a business case to be made for this. Yeah, there's a business model for them, too. I mean, exactly. they, they need these customers to exactly. know this stuff, right? Okay. And then on the higher education side, uh, our higher education partners uh, pay us for providing this service of really being the inter- interoperator between their, their higher education system uh, and many software companies that they would like to have partnerships and like to have content from. And so these early partnerships with universities, talk more about them, and, wh- and where are you seeing the most traction of colleges that are saying, yeah, that's a value proposition I acutely feel that we don't have, but that we need to be able to educate people on these platform-centric skills? One of the biggest value proposition that that's first resonates is is that we actually, our curriculum is branded by the software companies. Pathstream is, is white-labeled. Um, and so students actually graduate not only with the higher education certificate, but with the certificate from the software company. So if, if I'm in your platform and I'm working through the Facebook digital marketing, I leave with actual Facebook credential in addition to credit toward my degree? That's correct. So you leave with the Facebook certificate in digital marketing. And so in that, that's, you know, colleges realize that having multiple skill signals, that certificates are the fastest growing uh, um, credential category, and it, it gives students something, you know, in addition to their broader degree area that really shows that they have um, modern skills for the workplace. Are colleges doing this as part of their traditional curriculum, or is it this thing that's on the side in the extension program? Or you know? No, great, great question, and that is... 
really a core part of, I think, the value proposition that we have to both the higher education partners and the tech partners is we really work with our higher education partners to make sure that these certificate programs are stackable towards associate's degrees and bachelor's degrees and are not just an extension program uh, outside of the lifeblood of the university, but really are part of the core classroom and core competencies. So how do faculty react to that when you're, that's where you're going as well? Yeah. So. How do you sell that to the, at the faculty meeting? There's yeah. a wide range of reactions. So. I would imagine, yeah. So, 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 so give us the, the, the best reaction and the funniest reaction. Well, so our first faculty member who taught the, the first cohort of digital marketing students Hands down, her her comments afterwards was, it was such a relief to know that I had high-quality, relevant content that was up-to-date for my students so I could focus on teaching and focus on building community in my classroom uh, and and didn't have to worry about building content the whole time as a, a whole other job. And I think that's particularly valuable for our adjunct faculty members who maybe don't have time to be constantly updating curriculum. Um, you know, then we also have the other end of the spectrum with faculty who say, you know, I have a, a, an amazing program and I don't, I don't need your help. And when, when, when you confront that, is it, who, who at the university is your advocate? You know, a- advocates come from all over. Many of the, the leaders of our community college uh, system presidents are, re- this is very much aligned with the types of programs that they want to be offering. And so we, a- we often at the president or chancellor's level have, have an advocate, but you need to have faculty. If the faculty want, don't want to do it, the program's not going to succeed. And so it's really spending a lot of time with them, of them understanding that we're cut out of the same cloth as they are. We care about student outcomes. We're not trying to teach, a, a, put a, a software platform in their classroom for the sake of, of you know, marketing. Yep. Uh, this really is career preparation. Yeah, and so I, I, I guess, I mean, in, in many ways, you solve this problem, it seems, that colleges are, are, are facing where rounding out the curriculum with very, in this case, extremely uh, relevant, not even just like sort of the latest coding uh, language, but actually skills that will directly be marketable because of the certificate you'll earn. I would imagine a lot of presidents would be clamoring for this. Is that sort of the reaction you're getting also on that side? Or, or, or what's, what, what's their deep-seated fear? I mean, honestly, we have had great traction. I can say in our, our first sort of nine months of working on this, we partnered with over 20 colleges um, to, to, to integrate aspects of these types of programs. So there is a lot of interest. Though this changes fast, right? I mean, what's, what's the hot skill right now gets, becomes the dead skill a year later when another company becomes the hot company. So how do you kind of adapt to that? That's a great question. I think that is the reason why there needs to have this interoperable kind of middle piece component because if you teach someone very specifically how to use you know, Tableau as a tool and where are all the buttons in Tableau, that's a very different program than when and why and how are you applying this in a work context where you take out Tableau and you put in like the newest looker or whatever other competitor they have. And, and that it's a lot easier to learn that second digital skill because you learned it in the context of, of how to apply it on the job. So which do you do? How to, how to think about it or how to push the buttons? We do, we do both, okay. <laughs> but, but we, we specialize in the former, and then there's aspects of it where you need to learn to click buttons, but oftentimes that's, you know, click on this resource if you want to know about more of the buttons in the software. We really focus on the former. Terrific, terrific. Uh, Eleanor, thanks so much for joining us on Future U. We are going to be eager to watch how this develops. Thanks so much. So a fascinating set of guests that we've had on Future U. Uh, we've been through 
10 guests in, uh, in two nights uh, for, for, for today. Goldie, any, some, any big takeaways that you have? And uh, obviously that last one speaks to you because you have a report coming out on this topic. Yeah, I do. Actually, it's coming out next week. It's all about the skills gap. And so I'm kind of excited to, to, to think a little bit more about some of the things I heard today because I think um, some of the ideas that we heard also from the Kenzie Academy idea, is it, it, it all clicks. You know, this, it's not this either-or problem anymore. It's, there's a lot of both in this discussion about the skills gap and how to solve it. It's not, if people think about this as a kind of a narrow, it's either skills or it's college, that, mm-hmm. that's a sort of a not a, that's not a helpful way to think about it. That's kind of the approach I took in my report as well. So it's nice for me to kind of hear these, frankly, a little bit of a, uh, endorsement for that idea. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We've had a range, uh, you know, Ryan Craig was on yesterday talking about la- last mile providers and sort of going around universities. We also had uh, Chip Palsek and, and Dan Summer from uh, Trilogy and 2U after that uh, uh, acquisition. And then uh, Chalk, of course, and Eleanor and, and, uh, and, and the story of Harrisburg University coming up. And so there's actually a lot of counterweight, I would suggest, that says, hey, the university actually can be the central place that's a focal point for a variety of these experiences uh, in almost a lifelong learning continuum, actually. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole premise of my report is that universities need to, be, need to react, but not be, they don't have to become reductive in this process. They can just, I mean, it's more often some small changes and some, and some tweaks, maybe in some cases some bigger changes, but it doesn't necessarily mean the end of the university by any, by any sense of the word. And I think that's a good way to leave it. React, but don't become reductive. So we'll, we'll use that as your Twitter hashtag. Uh, <laughs> many thanks to all of you for being uh, in the audience. Many thanks to all of our guests uh, for joining us on today's episode. Thank you uh, to our producer, uh, Lauren Dibble. And, of course, Steve Chigaris, who will be uh, putting this all together and getting it out tomorrow. And uh, thanks to, uh, for being here for this live episode. Uh, and, Goldie, thank you for co-hosting, coming back on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. And so for all our listeners, uh, remember, uh, to, as you tune into Future You, if you like the show, uh, please be sure to give us a five-star rating on <laughs> iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And from ASU GSV, this is Future You. Future <laughs> You.